following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Well, we're continuing now in this series called Saved, What Happens When I Believe. And last week, we looked at the doctrine of justification, uh, which I argued is the cornerstone of this order of salvation that we've been unpacking through this series. And as we said in the last message, justification is God's once-for-all irreversible declaration that we are righteous in His eyes. Because on the cross, Jesus took our guilt on himself while crediting us with his righteousness. And just to understand justification in this way is to understand the scandal of it. You know, this idea that um, somehow this just doesn't seem right. That apart from anything that I'm asked to do, God just credits this status to me of being righteous because of what Christ has done. Uh, I've shared this quote with you before of Philip Yancey, but I think he captures the idea of the scandal well. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. By instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation. And every day, I must pray on you for the ability to hear its message. This was the liberation that Martin Luther experienced, where he finally understood Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, the, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? But is being a Christian only a matter of guilty people being declared innocent by God? Doesn't the Bible have something to say about actually becoming righteous people? It does. But the change that occurs in a person is found not in the doctrine of justification, but in the doctrine of sanctification. Wayne Grudem says, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Bruce Demarest says the close relationship between justification and sanctification means that God not only declares repentant sinners righteous, but through the Spirit's graces, He actually makes them so. Sanctification then is God's means of actualizing in forgiven sinners His original creative purpose. And so we looked at this diagram last message, this contrast between justification and sanctification. In justification, I am declared righteous as an instantaneous act of God, irrespective of anything that I have done, other than have faith in what Jesus has done for me. 
But in sanctification, now God is actually changing my being, the kind of person that I am, my character, to come in alignment with that righteousness that he has created me to be. Um, And that is a lifelong process. James says in chapter 2, verse 18 to 24 of his letter, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as right. So that's justification language. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, Some have taken this passage in James 2 to actually say, you see, the Bible contradicts itself all the time. Paul says one thing, and James says something completely different. But I think that's to totally misunderstand James' whole point. What James is saying is this. If you claim to have genuine faith, meaning you trust in Jesus Christ, then that faith must be demonstrated by the actions that your life takes. James is not arguing, as some suggest, that you need good works to earn God's favor so that he will save you. James is not saying that in these words. You see, there's a fundamental difference between saying you need good works to earn God's salvation and saying that when God saves a person, the faith that saves that person also expresses itself in good works. There is evidence that just like when Abraham took that sword and was read, that knife and was ready to plunge it into his son Isaac, that was a demonstration of the faith that he had in God, not earning God's favor because he was willing to do that act. In other words, we are not saved by our works, but true faith will always reveal itself through the works that we do in our life. That's James's entire point. In other words, the full understanding of salvation is not that just God declares us innocent, but now he is also at work to change us in the kind of people we are to make us more like Jesus. There are two key ideas in this doctrine of sanctification. The first is this, to be sanctified is to be set apart for God's special purposes. That's what the word sanctified literally means, set apart. When you read in the Old Testament, you see the sanctification concept showing up all the time. There are special days like the Sabbath. There are special garments like the ones that the priests wore. There are special people like the firstborn male of every family. And in the Bible, it calls each of these people or things sanctified. The Sabbath is sanctified, meaning it's set apart from every other day in the week for God's special purpose for how we observe it. A priest is sanctified because he is set apart for God's special 
purpose. In the same way, the Bible, when it talks about us being sanctified, part of that meaning is when Christ died for you on the cross, he redeemed you and he set you apart for a special purpose. That's the idea captured in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see here that? He's saying he chose you. He called you out. He set you apart so that you might fulfill his special mission in your life to declare his praises to the rest of the world. Let me illustrate it like this. Back in the days when I was a medical student and a resident, I had a very different mindset than my fellow classmates. Because you see, pretty much everyone else that I was in school with was planning on being a doctor in America. And so they were all figuring out what specialty do I want to be in, where do I want to live, whether it's Chicago or we're going to move to L.A. or I'm going to move down to central Illinois or something like that. But I realized that I had a very different destiny. I was heading toward a missionary career in Africa. And so, you know, I had to approach my medical training very differently. So one of the things I realized very quickly as a medical student is that everything revolves around technology. You know, American medicine is so heavily tech-dependent. All of the gadgets and gizmos and toys that doctors have at their disposal. So one of the things I had to do constantly is saying, I am not going to have that fluoroscope when I'm there in Africa. I'm not going to have that CAT scan or that MRI. So I had to think, what do I do in a place like Africa if I don't have all of these toys there? And I had to approach my medical training in a completely different way. There would be so many times when the doctors that are training us would say, at this point in the management of this patient, they said, I'm not going to even go into all the details of what you have to do because, frankly, at this point, you would just refer out to a specialist. Just your job is, as a primary care doctor is just get on the phone and call the specialist. And that's all you have to know about it is when to call the specialist. But what I was thinking was, I'm not going to have a specialist to call when I'm in Africa. I'm going to have to take care of this stuff myself. And so, so many times during my residency, uh, I would pull the doctor aside and I said, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. And can you actually tell me how to do this procedure? Because I may have to do it myself one day. And quite a few of these attending doctors were very accommodating when they found out I was headed to the mission field. And they said, yeah, come by in the afternoon and we'll actually do the procedure together. And I'll kind of show you how to do it. See, you, you see, in that sense, I was set apart. I didn't have the same destiny as all of these other doctors in training. I realized I was headed to an entirely different calling, an entirely different purpose in my life. And that radically shifted the way I approached my medical training. And I want to ask this, what about you? What about you, your life? What is God's agenda for you? For what special purposes has he set you apart? Now listen, I'm not only talking about praying about being a missionary in Africa, although that might be great, be very interesting to see some of you take a step like that, but I'm saying right now, in the present circumstances that you're faced with. What is God's agenda for the circumstances that have been brought into your life? Because you see, it's possible to go through life never really asking this question of sanctification. 
Instead, the truth is, I think, we're often working the angles, trying to figure out our next move that advances our agenda. You know? Which opportunities advance my career the most? What will give me the greatest earning potential? Which choices will result in my greatest happiness? Which people will help me reach my goals or increase my status? This is the scary thing is we can sort of go through life only asking these kind of questions. But when I really understand that I have been set apart, that I have been sanctified, then it introduces a whole other set of questions. Why aren't things working out the way I've anticipated? What might God have in store for me? Why did God bring this person into my life? Is it only for me to take advantage of them? Or maybe God wants me to witness to them and reach out to them. Why did God give me these amazing gifts and blessings? Why is he blessing me like this? You see, when we really understand this concept of sanctification, it begs us to ask a whole other set of questions in our lives. Why have I been set apart like this? What is God doing in my life that he's inviting me to walk into in terms of the opportunities that he is laying before me to serve him and not just serve myself? In addition to being set apart, to be sanctified is to be made increasingly holier, more like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, Paul is saying it right there. One of the reasons God chose you, one of the reasons why you have been predestined and saved by him is that his whole project in your life is to shape you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the doctrine of sanctification. In other words, the qualities that Jesus exhibited in his life when he walked on this earth, all of the things that Jesus embodied, like his ability to overcome temptation and sin, his generous and sacrificial love, the gentleness of his spirit, his freedom of the love of money, all of these things that characterize Jesus, God says, my work in you is to make you like him, to let you actually exhibit these qualities in your own life. The Bible repeatedly makes this connection between abstaining from sin, this idea of holiness, and being set apart for his purpose. It's captured in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. In other words, what Paul is saying is one of the motivations to keep free from the entanglements of sin is that we become useful to God. When we dirty ourselves by letting the world pollute us, then we begin to undermine what God desires to do in us, to use us for his special purposes. And as the Bible makes very clear We have a role to play in this process of sanctification. Some of the aspects of the order of salvation, as I said in previous messages, we don't have any participation in, like our election. When God chooses us, 
You didn't have any say in that. When God regenerates you, gives you new life, you didn't have any participation in that. But when we get to this doctrine of sanctification, the Bible makes it very clear that you do have a role to play in the process of sanctification. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. What I want you to notice is how much of Colossians 3 is in command form. In command form. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, ang- as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Another command. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. These are all things that God expects us to take an active role in as we address these issues. It's interesting how often Paul will use the metaphor of taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes to describe this process of sanctification. What he is in essence saying is, when God saved you, when he justified you, it's like he gave you a bath. You're completely clean, but you're still wearing dirty clothes. It's like the dirty habits of your old life that you haven't quite shed yet. And so much of the work of sanctification is putting off that dirty stuff, and putting on a clean set of clothes that are more fitting with the cleanliness that God has already given you. You see, not every sin struggle gets solved the moment you believe when you become saved. Not every temptation disappears the moment you're saved. And I think we've all discovered that, right? For many of us, we may have testimonies like that. Like when I came to believe, there were some things that I, were act- I was actually freed from immediately. For me, one of those things was my love of money and this idea of like, you know, like I, growing in the immigrant experience and coming into America and having nothing and struggling so much financially. And then my father finally getting finished with his training and becoming a doctor, a wealthy surgeon. And like that was ingrained in me, this absolute rest of all my security and hopes and money. When I came to believe, I don't know how it happened. There was no fight. There was no struggle. Suddenly, all of that was just let go, meaning I don't have to be rich. I don't need a wealthy, a big house and a wealthy life and all of that. I just, suddenly, God just took those desires out of me instantly. But there have been other desires that have been much harder to root out in my life that I fight to this very day. This is the battle of sanctification, of saying, take off that dirty clothing because God has made you clean and put on the new clothing of your new life in Christ. Now, that, in essence, is sanctification defined. For a little bit, I want to unpack some additional teaching about sanctification that will, I hopefully, paint a fuller picture of understanding how this doctrine plays out in our lives. The first truth that I want to offer to you is this. The process of sanctification is a lot slower than any of us hope it would be or think it is. Let's be honest here. I think all of us thought we would be further along in spiritual maturity than we actually are, aren't you? I mean, I know I feel that way. Um, 
The Apostle Paul understood this struggle. Arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And yet in Romans 7, he writes this amazing confessional. And I want to read it in Eugene Peterson's The Message Version because put into modern vernacular, I think it has a certain punch and an authenticity that rings true in all of us. Romans chapter 7, verse 15 to 25, Paul writes, What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Can you relate to Paul's confession of the war that wages in his heart, that he wants to do what is right, and yet he finds himself unable to do it, and he keeps struggling in this cosmic battle between sin and righteousness. The great reformer Martin Luther understood this war of the heart very well. In his own confessions, he writes, the words freedom from the wrath of God, from the law, sin, death, etc. are easy to say, but to feel the greatness of the freedom and to apply its results to oneself in practice, this is more difficult than anyone can say. In the days that Martin Luther was alive, there were these factions in the church that were really very judgmental toward other Christians, looking down on everyone else and basically saying, we have found a secret way. We have tapped into a secret power that you guys don't know anything about. And we're living lives of near perfection, where we're at such a heightened level of spirituality that you guys don't even come close to achieving. And there were these segments of the church that Martin Luther was dealing with and he categorically, categorically attacked these factions in the church saying, you guys are painting the picture that you guys are super Christians, better than everyone else, but the truth as far as I see it as I look into your lives is that you just lack self-awareness of the depth of your own sin. Speaking against these groups, he said, but I and the others like me hardly know the basic elements of this art, which he meant living by faith, And yet we are studious pupils in the school where this art is being taught. It is indeed being taught, but so long as the flesh and sin remain, 
It cannot be learned thoroughly. What Luther is saying here is, you know, I have devoted my entire life to this as a monk. My entire preoccupation has been growing in holiness, and yet you're claiming that you know some secret that I don't know about and saying, I struggle every day with this stuff, you know? I am not nearly as far on this journey as I wish I was. I struggle with sin all the time. And he's saying, like, what is the secret that you guys know that I don't know, that I've been wrestling with my entire life? Now, listen. The argument is not that there is no difference among Christians. That's not, I don't think, Luther's argument or Paul's. There is no doubt that some Christians are further along in spiritual maturity than others. But the point that I'm simply trying to make here this morning is this. We must, relentless, we must resent, relentlessly resist the temptation to hide or minimize our sin struggles because hypocrisy is always waiting right around the corner. You understand that? In our earnest zeal to grow spiritually, there must be a counter-confession that I am not growing nearly as much as I hope. Otherwise, hypocrisy is waiting right around the corner. That's the constant temptation of the religious, of the shameful, is if you can't, you know, it's like that, right? Fake it until you make it. (laughs) That should be the motto of every hypocrite. Fake it until you make it, right? Because it's this idea like, I can't, I just can't, but I can look like I can't. You know, that's what it literally is. It's putting on a mask of righteousness to cover our insecurities, to put on a facade that we are further along on this journey than we actually are, out of that fear that we don't measure up. And the moment you go down that road, you, read, you, you absolutely derail yourself from any genuine movement towards spiritual growth that you can experience. It has to start with honesty of my true condition before God. That is the only way spiritual growth happens. But the second is this. The second truth about sanctification is this. There are spiritual disciplines that can help us in the process of sanctification. There are actually spiritual disciplines that can help us in this process of sanctification or spiritual growth. Now, about five years ago, uh, a friend of ours gave us a treadmill that we, he wasn't using much. So he said, you know, if you want it, it's yours. And I said, yeah, I'll take it, you know, in a moment of enthusiasm and <laughs> false hopes. <laughs> so, so, I, so I put it in my basement. And the second it got there, I go, I don't know if I'm ever going to use this thing, you know. So it actually sat there for a few weeks. Uh, untouched. And, uh, you know, Betty was just down there one day, and uh, she was just looking at, oh. She just, uh, and then she's like, maybe, she was joking, actually. She goes, maybe I'll give this a try. So one day, just on a lark, she just got on the treadmill and just started running. Uh, now, you got to understand, Betty has never been a runner in her life, okay? Um, but suddenly, that one day on the treadmill turned into a week, And that week turned into a month. And that month turned actually into years. And suddenly my wife became a runner. And not just like a runner, but I mean like a diehard, serious runner. Like she was getting up at 3.30 to 4 in the morning to run. 
for like an hour to two hours every morning. And uh, we have an elliptical uh, thing, runner, that I use for like 30 minutes a day. I cannot do that thing unless I'm watching Netflix, okay? Honest to God, okay? <laughs> if, if I don't watch a, a show, I will not get on that thing. Um, but Betty, I, Betty doesn't need anything. For two hours straight, she just closes her eyes. And she's just running like Forrest Gump, you know? She's just <laughs> running and running. And sometimes I just, I'm, I'm in my study doing some work on my computer. I'm just hearing that treadmill, one hour. Two, I just poke my head in there going like, what in the world is going on in there? And she just has her eyes closed. And she's just running until finally, as many of you know, a few weeks ago, she actually ran a marathon. She finished it. And let me tell you something here, okay? My wife is many wonderful things. But athletic is not one of the things that comes to mind when I think of her, okay? Um, if you would have told me back when we were dating in college and I was kind of at more prime physical shape that one day your wife will be capable of, a fi- of an athletic feat that you wouldn't even come close to being able to do, I would have, I would have never married her. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. I... I, I I would not have believed you. I would have said, no way, impossible. You know, but she, I don't think I could even run five miles, honestly, today. But this, to me, speaks to the power of training. Training. And I'm going to argue to you that to grow as a Christian requires intentionality and determination. I think what I see often is many Christians frustrated at their lack of spiritual growth. And yet, at the same time, their attempts at spiritual growth are more like these vague, half-hearted New Year's resolutions, right? You, you take random stabs at trying to be holy, and then you're like, ah, I don't know what happened to it, but I can't do this thing. I don't know why. Um, John Ortberg says this, Right now, you cannot run a marathon. More to the point, You cannot run a marathon even if you try really, really hard. Trying hard can accomplish only so much. You must arrange your life around certain practices that will enable you to do what you cannot do now by willpower alone. When it comes to running a marathon, you must train, not merely try. There is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. For much of my life, when I heard messages about following Jesus, I thought in terms of trying hard to be like him. So, after hearing, or preaching for that matter, a sermon on patience on Sunday, I would wake up Monday morning determined to be a more patient person. Have you ever tried to be patient with a three-year-old? I have, and it generally didn't work any better then would, be, would my trying hard to run a marathon for which I had not trained. I would end up exhausted and defeated. Given the way we are prone to describe, quote, following Jesus, it's a wonder anyone wants to do it at all. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 
1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You see, Paul says, don't run this Christian race like a runner running aimlessly who doesn't even know where the finish line is. Run with purpose. Run with strict training. Embark on this disciple's journey and pick up this mantle of discipleship, of following in the ways of Jesus and learning the secrets of that kingdom, of what it means to grow spiritually. Christians in every generation have practiced what are known as the spiritual disciplines to help them to grow as disciples of Christ. Practices like Bible meditation and fasting and prayer and celebration and secret service and pilgrimage and all of these things are spiritual disciplines that have, for the most part, been lost in the modern church. I think many of us have attempted them in certain frustrated and uninformed ways and just became convinced that these things are not for us and we've given up. Um, And maybe that describes you when you think about things like fasting and prayer and Bible reading. Your kind of eyes glaze over and go, yeah, you know what? I've tried some of that stuff on my own. And I don't know. I need some training wheels, you know, because it just never works with me. I, I always feel like I give up after just the little attempts at these things. Um, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that dilemma. And what I want to say is this. In 2016, next year, I'm going to actually do some teaching through the spiritual disciplines and unpack this whole mysterious world of spiritual formation. And what we're going to do next year, I, and I feel like the, you know, the boy who cried wolf. I know a number, number of times I said this, but we are next year, going to roll out a discipleship program in which I am basically going to invite you to find two other people and get into groups of three. And we're going to learn this disciple's journey in community with one another as we get some guidance and mentorship as well as going through a curriculum and really trying to explore what this process of discipleship really is. And so I want you to pray about it. It's not going to be mandatory. It's going to be voluntary. But that's something that I'm going to actually invite you to pray about, is to join this discipleship program. We're going to roll out next to you to say, yeah, I mean, I have this hunger inside me to know what some concrete next steps could look like in this process of spiritual growth. The last and final thing I want to say is simply this. True sanctification draws us into closer relationship with Jesus and increasing dependence on his power. Why I say this is this. Of all of the aspects of our salvation, if there is one that is so likely to lead to legalism and hypocrisy, it's the sanctification issue, right? I think there is a very dangerous but unbiblical logic that thinks something like this. God saved me when I was helpless and hopeless. But now that I'm saved, it's up to me to fix myself and to figure out my life and get right and, and deal with this garbage that's inside me, you know, uh, because uh, it's my part now. When I say that we have a role to play in sanctification, that's not what I'm saying. Even when we talk about these spiritual disciplines, 
It's not about self-improvement techniques that are going to make you a better person. All of these spiritual disciplines are directed toward a deepening relationship of dependency on God that changes me by his power, the Spirit's power. Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That's the real danger of pursuing the sanctification. You begin by God's power, and you try to finish with your own. And it's saying, whatever this journey looks like of spiritual growth, it must be done in such a way that at the end of the journey, I am more dependent on God, not more independent from him. 1 Thessalonians, uh, or, or actually I deleted the wrong one. Anyway, 1 first, first Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 23 to 24 says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Do you hear that? May God sanctify you. It is his work in you that is sanctifying you. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Do you hear that? He will do it. He is going to do that work of sanctification in your life. Let me just close with this quote from Alan Craft that I've shared with you in the Growing in the Gospel series. Very soon after our conversion, the life-giving melodies of brokenness and faith unintentionally get drowned out by a growing and incessant drumbeat that sounds so spiritual. Just try harder. Just try harder. Just try harder. The cadence of this drumbeat begins to drive our spiritual lives. You are broken, but now you are getting better. If you do these things Christians are supposed to do, you will continue to grow spiritually, become more holy, sinning less and less. God will be more and more pleased with you because of how Christ-like you are becoming Without even realizing it, the melody of brokenness gets replaced by the march of self-effort. The melody of faith gets overtaken by the relentless drumbeat of performance. Just try harder. Just try harder. We stop hearing the music of the gospel and begin pursuing a spiritual growth path that is actually removed from the gospel. The impact of the subtle shift on our spiritual lives is devastating. Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table again on this Lord's Day celebration. And as we get ready for the Lord's table, I want to invite you to reflect on this doctrine of sanctification. Like I said, um, the Lord's will is that you grow spiritually. The Lord's will is that he predestined you, that out of your choosing... Um, he might make you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But the way that we go about pursuing this purpose of God in our lives makes all the difference because legalism and hypocrisy are always waiting right around the corner. Just try harder. Just try harder. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. Fix yourself. Just try harder. And man, God knows that religion is so good at 
beating down people that are already beating themselves up. And that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The real hope of sanctification comes in what Paul said is, this is God's desire for you and His work in you. And He who is faithful will do it. Are you frustrated by your own lack of spiritual growth, how little you've changed over the years? I know I am. And rather than just using this as an opportunity to beat ourselves up, maybe this is the Spirit speaking to you saying, um, I want to teach you some ways to grow into deeper dependency on me. Because the truth is one of the reasons why you're not growing spiritually is because you're like a, a branch disconnected from the vine. Like you're living life on your own terms. And what you need to do is not just try harder, but reconnect to these streams of living water that can nourish your soul and feed your spirit. And that's why we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning is to be reminded of that truth, that the gospel is not about just try harder, but it's about this union with Christ, Christ in me, I connected to him. And out of that flows this life force that is enabling me to live the life that he desires for me. So let's get ready to come to the Lord's table and come in a moment of prayer before the Lord. Maybe this could even be an invitation to your confession before him, saying, Lord, I don't feel that I've grown nearly as much as I wish, but it is my sincere and earnest desire to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And I realize my utter helplessness in achieving that goal by my own strength. But I wanted to do this day is to be nourished by you and receive from you what you alone can give. Let's just pray that for a few minutes as we come into a song of response before we come before the Lord's table. We come to this table as we do each month, not because we are worthy, but because in our unworthiness, Christ has made us worthy. And so I think the act of faith of coming to this table and taking from the bread and taking from this cup is one of the greatest and most powerful expressions of our absolute need for the grace of God in our lives. Because when we take this bread and take this cup, it is this confession that only because of what Christ has done for me do I find any courage to stand and claim anything of the promises that he gives to me. I am weak, but he is strong. I fail, but he remains faithful. That's the testimony of every believer that will stand one day before that throne in clothing of white, singing salvation belongs to our God because he alone is the one that has done this work in me. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it before his disciples in the upper room. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat of it. And whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me because this represents my broken body for you. Then after that, he took a cup of wine and he had each disciple take a drink from a common cup. And he said, as you drink this wine, do it in remembrance of me because this wine represents my shed blood for you. In your own efforts, in your own strength, you do not have the resources But every time you come and take part in the ceremony, remember that it is I who has done it for you.